I tried to think of how to pronounce your name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Wernestol. Wernestol. Yeah, and okay. the, it got two uh, Swedish letters in it, the A with the dots and the A with the circle. Right? Indeed. It doesn't really mean anything more than like there are two words like Vern is protection or, or cover uh -huh. and Stål is steel. So it's like a protective cover of steel. <laughs> so you're like Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but no, <laughs> but that, that's sense. what it means. <laughs> So, Pontus Wernestol. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Julie. We are back in the forest, again in the Buddha Hills. This is a privilege to have a wonderful guest with us, all the way from the far Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> And truth to be told, we only met two days ago, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Got acquainted. And the conversation that we had over dinner just struck a chord, and I thought... It would be wonderful to have you and hear your opinion and your experience on the field. So maybe give a little introduction of who you are and, and, and your background. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's really great to be walking here. And it actually ties into who I am because I really like hiking and walking in nature. So this is perfect. I actually thought of a... You fit right in. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really do. And I feel really comfortable walking and, and thinking at the same time. So you know the old, uh, like, I think, therefore I am? I'm like more, I, I walk, therefore I think. Yes! <laughs> so, so um, um, yeah, my, I, I'm from Sweden, uh, and uh, I'm currently um, splitting my time between uh, the university in Hamstad, uh, where I'm a deputy professor in information technology, focusing on Uh, everything UX service design oriented, but with a particular angle on AI and how that affects our craft. Uh, and also I am head of design and innovation at a, at an AI agency called Egghead. Uh, it's a smaller, newly started company in Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden. And we do consultancy work where AI and machine learning is, um, at the core of what we do. Where did the name come from? Egghead? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Egghead is actually, um, you know, in 1950s, um, Egghead was used instead of nerd or geek. Oh, I didn't know that. No, in English? In or? English, yeah. Really? And we spell it like, you know, it's, it's kind of a jokingly that we are very efficient. So we spell it E-G-H-E-D. I saw Egghead. that. And this strikes a chord with me because I'm a computational linguistic Uh, we use the phonetic uh, in the logo. So Egghead is the phonetic rendering of um, of Egghead. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so, so that's what I do. And I've that setup has been part of my uh, career for almost 20 years. I've always had like a part-time uh, job in academia or at the university and a part-time, sometimes full-time, but uh, mostly part-time at different agencies. So I've been in advertising. Uh, I've been in um, a UX uh, consultancy service for, for a number of years. And now I'm at this AI uh, agency. <laughs> so when we sat down around the table and We were chatting and then AI, service design, AI, service design. So what is this confusion? How, how Do you want to tell me a little bit about how these two fields 
met in your right. So, career. So, <clears throat> and it's interesting because they, they are two fields that just recently are beginning to, to merge more and more. I mean, AI has long been a very technical engineering heavy yeah. uh, endeavor, right? Yeah. And design has been a very human-centered uh, activity. Trying to be. <laughs> yeah, trying to be, right? Uh, and we keep rebranding like people-centered, uh, humanity-centered and all that. But at the, at the heart of it, I think... You know, if I'm, if I can get a little, uh, almost mean, I can say that Please. a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people that really likes tech, but can't really handle the math and the programming, they turn to UX design. Really? Is this <laughs> how you see it? Wow. No, Love I don't it. see it like that, but I, I've noticed that a it's lot okay. of people are really interested in technology, but when it comes to programming, they're not that interested in, in the underlying models and the backend systems and so yeah. on. Uh, and, I have, since I've started introducing AI to designers, they recoil as soon as I start talking about functions, algorithms, data, all that kind of yeah. uh, language scares yeah. them off a little bit. Really? Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously as an, as a designer, you don't need to know the math behind it. Yeah. Um, but you need to understand AI as a design material, if you will. Absolutely. What does prediction and computation mean for how does it impact the user experience? That's where I think now that AI is becoming more and more commonplace, um, I think we have an opportunity and a responsibility as designers to, to sort of with a critical eye, um, see what we can do with that design material. Um, like when I released my book, it's two years ago now. <clears throat> Some of the designers that, that read it and I talked to and discussed the book with them, they, they sort of said like, yeah, so if you're interested in AI, then this book is a great asset for you as a designer. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not optional to be interested in AI, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's not like I want to evangelize everyone should use AI. It's just that can you name one product that don't have any kind of data or um, machine learning aspect to it. It's hard to find products today that are not affected by data streams, uh, are updated, have personalized recommendations. Any e-commerce system have that, for example. Hopefully also the people who work there understand that. I, I think the general understanding of AI is, is low. And I also think there's a problem with the concept of AI okay. because no one can really define what it is and what it isn't. AI okay. is like this fluffy word that we use. And it also the fact that we tend to push the definition of AI forward as we uncover more and more things. So, and that has been, I mean, John McCarthy, one of the pioneers um, in the 50s, he already said, like, as soon as it works, no one calls it AI anymore, <laughs> right? And that's that's right. still true today that, okay. like, Relational databases, regular SQL databases in the 60s were part of AI research. And now we don't consider that AI, of course, because we understand it so well. And the advancements in what we view as, uh, you know, biological intelligence is also advancing. So that means that whatever machines haven't done yet, that's what AI is. <laughs> Right? right. So that means that when we talk about what, you know, how can we use AI, we have to realize that that's a very fluffy concept. That's why I personally prefer talking about, for example, machine learning or large language models or slightly more concrete. 
So what would be the different definition of AI? How would you help others look at that? Yeah. So currently, like 99% of the value creation in AI, like in in products or services, uh, is uh, machine learning. So there, uh, I would say, well, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, can you name a classical AI, like a symbolic AI based system? We don't use that a lot today. No. So most of it is data driven based on machine learning. Yeah. Okay. And within machine learning, you have reinforcement learning, supervised, unsupervised, semi-supervised machine learning, and all those kinds of aspects, right? Most of the stuff we see today are based on that. So that's uh, to return to your original question. What I would say is that. An AI system today is data-driven. It's often very black-boxed. You can't really see why uh, a prediction was made, uh, which is a challenge for designers. And you need a lot of structured data in order to train a model to do prediction for you. So a useful concept, at least today, is if you view your problem as prediction, then uh, today's machine learning can be of great help. And like ChatGPT, for example, that most people think about today when we say AI, most people think ChatGPT, right? Uh, other than those people who think of these future humanoids who will destroy the Earth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we can return to the science fiction narrative and the pop cultural baggage we have. We that, That's fine. But um, like ChatGPT is, you know, the, the user experience is insanely good, right? Because you, you get... You know, amazed by how well it responds, but I mean, maybe it's, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but maybe it's also because you use the means of communication that you do in everyday life. So maybe yeah. that's why it also just increases I'm, the amazement factor. I'm, I'm glad you're you're saying that because in my mind, uh, and I'm sticking out my neck here a little bit. In my mind, ChatGPT is a UX product, not an AI product. But we can return to that. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so ChatGPT is just prediction. It's nothing else. It's like looking back at the text that has been produced or in the prompt. It's just a matter of stochastic, uh, stochastically choosing which word will come next. We have a problem with imagining a mind behind ChatGPT, but there is no mind, of course. It's just statistics and producing the next obvious word. How is that different from the human thinking okay so that's a deep philosophy uh, philosophy of mind uh, thing it has to do i think and the jury is out of course because we don't know what exactly what human intelligence is and is not but i think we we need to refer to things like qualia do we really understand internally the world around us and and uh, today's ai uh, does not do that (laughs) dr emily bender i think is the one who introduced the concept of a stochastic parrot characterizing what ChatGPT and the large language models do. Like, it's just parroting what people have written uh, in the training material, right? Right. So we have a tendency to anthropomorphize uh, all the technology we build. So ChatGPT is really easy to start imagining a mind behind it where there is none. (laughs) When you say machine learning, I feel like this expression has become so commonplace that I almost should know what it means. Yeah. What um, does it mean? Exactly. That, and that's part of the thing. If you really want to understand what machine learning is, you have to go a little bit into the math. And most people shouldn't have to do that, I guess. So machine learning is basically taking a known set of data. And, and I'm using the supervised aspect now because it's easier to understand. So you're taking a, a 
a set of data that a human typically has already started labeling. Let's say you want to make an image recognition software that can distinguish a dog from a cat. (laughs) That means that you put a lot of humans in charge of looking at, you know, a thousand photos and say that that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a dog, and so on, right? You train a model on those known examples. And this, well, we call it neural nets. Uh, so it's a, it's a big model of weights and nodes. So when you then show this uh, system a previously unseen picture of either a dog or a cat, it can guess whether or not it is a cat or a dog, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the magic is. So you, you show them a picture it has never seen before. And you get an output saying, yeah, that's a cat. And you look at the picture and it's like, yeah, you're right. It is a cat, right? But it's always a percentage. So you will have to set a threshold saying like, if you think it's 85% or more certain that it is a cat, then you should say it's a cat. But you always run the risk of having what we call false positives and false negatives. Like the system wouldn't know. It doesn't really know what a cat is. It just... Recognizes the, the elements the, 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 yeah, not, yeah, of yes, if, yeses and elements of nose. It doesn't know those things either. That's the trick. They don't know what a, what an eye is. It doesn't know what a no, nose that I get, is. That I get. Yeah, yeah. So it just knows pixels in a two-dimensional grid if we're talking about photos, yes. right? Okay. So it just knows uh, the hexadecimal code of hues of, of pixels. That's what it knows, so to speak, right? But if you do it at scale... I have to realize that the power of today's AI is about scale. And that's why ChatGPT has scraped um, all of the internet, basically, and a lot of book repositories, all of Wikipedia, and so on. It's the scale that makes it impressive. Um, the technology per se is fairly brute, brute force processing. Right. <laughs> but it also means that technology is just as good as the answers that humans once have yeah exactly given it. yeah 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 so the basic premise for human activity is still asking the right questions the, and posing the right questions and using it for you know whatever we think is the right reasons so that that's why i think it's imperative that human centered designers can bring that line of thought to the table because otherwise the <laughs> i'm being mean again now but otherwise the tech bros of the world will <laughs> <laughs> we love you guys. <laughs> we'll, we'll just, and that's basically if, you know, completely honestly here, the, like, that's what happened. Open AI is based on sc- scraping copyrighted materials, right? And it's the same with mid-journey and all that. That's just data theft. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because the people behind those services, they perhaps didn't even realize that they were doing copyright infringements or they did. And <laughs> I don't know. Right. But the problem is that if you're not trained in seeing those societal and ethical aspects in your work, then of course you're going to make mistakes. And I think uh, engineering education today has too little of those aspects in, in yes, the curriculum. I, I was going to say that to me, it really poses a deep problem that very often tech bros, as we title them, <laughs> yeah. as label them, um, they more often than not come from people who are, let's just say, less eager to communicate with their fellow humans. And this is a hard generalization here. But if you compare it with designers who are all about getting to know the other person's perspective, it's less true to, about 
tech uh, froze. Yeah, it's and then if you roll it together with also legislation or anything about ethical or philosophical aspects, and therefore the lack of it. Yeah, what happens in that mix? That's why I jumped on the the egghead endeavor because I'm the first person with a design background coming in, and uh, yeah, how long have they been? One year. Okay. So it's really early, early days. To me, it's kind of like I was generalizing before about designers uh, who are interested in tech might yes. not necessarily be interested in math. Well, that the the other side of that coin is that engineers are like interested in math, but maybe not in people. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right. And then there, of course, these are hard generalization and we have people that are a little bit of both, of course. But in general, I think if you're starting like an AI company, Yes. Then your first thought might not be to hire designers. Your first thought is to be hire data scientists and machine learning experts and so on. Same goes for if you're starting a design agency. Your first thought is not to hire data scientists, right? Oh my God, you're <laughs> speaking from my heart. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as a sad reality. Yes. So, so, and, and I think that's why the new, and I don't know. Um, you know, the last maybe 10 or 15 years, maybe 10 years, the last 10 years, a lot of agencies got bought, a lot of design agencies oh, yeah. got bought by banks and insurance companies and management consultants and so on. So maybe there's room now for a new generation of agencies that are more integrating, uh, for example, emerging technologies like AI in their offering. Because as a design agency, at least in Sweden, the tendency was that design agencies started out with a front-end development department and you had UXers and usability and, and all things under the same roof. And then I don't know if it's the economy or something else, but a lot of design agencies started to get rid of the front-end development things and outsourcing that to development agencies rather than, right? So we kind of missed the, to have technological competency in-house. And also maybe to build like a long-lived uh, common language between those yeah. um, stakeholders. And that's harder if you're separating them into separate sure. companies, I mean, right? If you think of Agile when it came in and yeah. how it advocated for you have to sit in the same room. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when I first encountered it and I was a little bit against like ah, all this fuss about yeah. having to do every, you know, like every day, every week, how we do it. but. I actually became a big advocate for yeah. at least the basic idea that, yes, communication, yeah. coexistence, yeah. Uh, reliability, accountability, transparency, not exactly. too bad. Yep, yep. I mean, I, there are still limits to Agile, I think, in UX, but that's a whole other conversation. For sure. And Agile, just like all the words we use, tend to differ. And I forget who, but I, uh, I, I like the expression... Um, semantic dragons that Tell fly around. That's <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> like when words we use tend to shift in meaning over time and oh, yeah. we, we don't have the same, <laughs> yeah, the, the semantic dragons flying around and changing and shape shifting. And that's like, that's the same thing with agile. When I started out like 2002, I did a lot of, I was actually a programmer back then. Um, for, you were no, a for programmer. yeah, for Nokia. Um, well, front end, but, but still. <laughs> And that's when, you know, the, the extreme programming uh, came along with Kent Beck and all those and the Agile Manifesto came out. And that's a completely different thing than what I feel Agile means today. Now, 
I've seen consultancy firms claiming that they're agile. I don't know what what they do. Stand up for their PowerPoint decks. Uh, I'm, you know, what, you, why do you think that that's a contradiction? It's interesting to me. Well, no, not a contradiction. I'm just saying that agile uh, as a it was a really strict programming thing. It was built by programmers for programmers in order to get code working. That's the original. And then people liked the idea and it got spread out. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that Agile, uh, if I went back in time and talked to my fellow peers uh, in 2002 about Agile, it 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 wouldn't mean the same thing as, as it does today. I wouldn't imply that it's bad the reason why i asked is because to me already back then yeah. i mean not talking i'm not talking 2002 i'm talking 10 years later 2012 yeah but to me it was already some kind of a process management framework rather yeah. than something only applicable to programming yeah that's the shift that happened and i guess it 2012 10 years had passed and uh, it was not only programmers talking about agile it's just an example of a natural way of how terminology shifts. It's the same with UX design and interaction design and service design, right? Yes. Right? Let's talk about service design for a moment because okay. I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> so around the table last night or two nights ago, somebody asked you, how would you define service design? And you <laughs> yeah. said something really concise. Oh, well. <laughs> and I would love you to repeat that. <laughs> so what you know, is service design? The, the spur of the moment I said, I guess I said something along the lines that, yeah. Um, you said five legs, I think. Yeah, I think the five pillars. Um, yeah. One of them is that it has to be participatory or yeah. co-creative in a sense, right? So you need to embed, for example, domain experts into your team. Yeah. And, and uh, it has to be holistic. Um, you need to look at not only if you do a service blueprint or a customer journey map, you can't really say, let's do a customer journey map for system X in our customers yes. world, right? You need to, yeah, well, system X that you own is just a minority part of their life. So it, if you just do the customer journey map on that, I would just call that a process diagram and not a customer journey map, for example. So it has to be holistic, incorporate digital, non-digital, all the touch points. And then I also guess said that it has to have both the front stage and the backstage perspective, right? Because UX design, and I'm using UX design in, in the sense that I have a feeling it's used now, not necessarily what we meant by it, you know, when Norman coined the term in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the UX design is heavily focused on producing stuff on the front stage, like what is in front of our eyes as end customers of some sort, right? Whereas service design claims that, well, in order for services to be good, we have to rig our company so we can deliver service in singular, right? Yes. So that means that you have to design the backstage. Like you use the organization and the business model as your design material. Indeed. Right? Thank you. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like, yes, I feel like service design today often has a misconception of just being the front-end part yeah, of yeah. the job. Clear. I, I guess you, you can probably get a better podcast guest explaining like the theoretical details and backgrounds about this, but I, I have a sense that the American school of service design yeah. is more focused on delivering great services and great customer uh, experiences and perhaps at the expense of 
the backstage, uh, like the workers delivering the service, might not be as in a good place. Happy, right? And yeah, exactly. They, they they can burn out, but as long as you serve the customer, then everything is good. fine, right? Yeah. But the Scandinavian approach has traditionally been more co-creative and uh, flat organizations. It has focused a little bit on the back stage process because we have that. I, I don't know, I guess, political background, like in the 70s, uh, Scandinavia was in a different place than it is today, <laughs> but more participatory, more co-creative. Um, I mean, it has deep roots there, for sure. Yeah, and uh, th this ties into one other, I don't know if it's a foundational leg to service design, but it's a way that it has been applied, at least in Sweden, a lot of uh, governmental organizations or public organizations are using service design. And we're also talking about policy design, for example. And um, that, that fits right in with a more co-creative, not necessarily producing commercial services uh, at the end of the day. But, but I think it also proves that service design is or is supposed to be driven by value creation at the end. Exactly. And how you do it, it also needs to be sustainable. So it needs yeah. to touch upon the back office yeah. processes. If you really want to dig into what service design is, I think you should also consider that it has to be somehow based in service-dominant logic, uh, right? It has to operate under the premise that value is created in real time. That's why we use the theater metaphor of front stage and backstage, right? Yeah. The theater play you go see a particular night will be unique, and it's not valuable unless you as a spectator take an active part in the performance and you co-create that value while it's you can't store a theater yes. performance and sell it later, for example. Yes. Service dominant logic is a premise for service design. And UX designers, they don't have to even know about service dominant logic, right? So that's a difference. Still, I, I see that there's a tendency that you worked as a UX designer for a few years and you're more senior now and you got more experience, so you become more, you know, strategic. And all of a sudden you you are a service designer. Yes. <laughs> but I'm I, I'm not sure. It's it's a little bit like, yeah, sure, you can call yourself that, but what does it mean <laughs> then to be a service designer? It's like agile. It means everything after a while. Yes. So how do you think one can become a service designer? Yeah, that's that's first of all, well, why do we need uh, a specific profession called service design? That's the first question, right? Yes. And it but if we decide we do can and I give a can I give an attemptive answer to sure, that? Sure. So, of course, I'm talking from the heart. Yeah. But, but I see with the clients that I work with as a service designer, is very often there is just a connecting element is missing from a lot of, let's call it data streams or decision streams or even either we talk positive or negative or just data, or just information flows, they are not linked. And there is no role that helps them link it, because also I don't think that it can be expected from a role that is specialized on one aspect of right. of procedures or of the services or running the, the business. Yeah. And so that's why I see the value of service design embedded into actually every company, yeah. in almost, I mean, and I would need to think if I can think of an exception, but... That's what I see that this role can bring to the table if they create this role and if it's given the authority to, you know, to link these things. And also if it has the capabilities of doing it in a way that it's 
useful and it's inclusive. And I agree. I totally agree. So I, I would agree with you that yes, we need service designers. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, uh, the, the the question is like, so should it then be like a protected title with a license or uh, something like that? Yeah. Like, it's... like like a doctor? Should you have a uh, like an oath you you swear when you you are a service designer? Oh yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. To me, the answer is. I don't know if you want to call it service design or not. That's I I don't care too much about the actual title, but I the role as you mentioned, yes, the function, yes, should be there. And I think we're currently we're making a mistake not elevating this kind of role or function to a more official stance because we are. I want to hug you right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please keep preaching. <laughs> you know I have a very functional way of looking at it since. I, I would say 2014, 2015, the GDP is more heavily influenced by data streams and digital services than physical, right? Okay. And who's in charge of building digital infrastructures? Well, service designers and programmers and, and so on. And tech bros. Tech bros, exactly. <laughs> so wh why do we keep everything else in our infrastructures, like roads and railroads and, and uh, bridges and all that kind of stuff? It's very heavily regulated. Because it affects a lot of people and it's supposed to give service to people. Yes. Now that majority of services are actually digital, but we still, it's like the Wild West. We still don't have any regulation, any protected, like accountable roles. Uh, so it's just, I, I think it's just a huge mistake. In 20, who was it? 17, 18, 18. I went to South by Southwest. Yeah. Big tech cultural right. festival. And I was looking out for a workshop on legal, like legislation. <laughs> you know, they talked a lot about <laughs> autonomous vehicles and a lot of other topics that were emerging at the time. And I was like, where are the legal guys? And I found a tiny, tiny workshop. Oh, you did? Okay. It was, I mean, that's maybe good, right. but it's a huge event, right? It's like, it, it yeah. takes over the half of Austin. So, and, yeah, but, but and, and I found this, I just want to tell you that I found this workshop. It was so small, it didn't even get a room, okay? So it was held at the end of the hallway in one of the big conference spaces. And we were maybe like 10 people. Yeah. I think that's a very striking image because, like I said, like aspiring uh, tech people, they don't get into that business to deal with legal stuff. Yeah. I mean, then they would go to law school. That's their thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that ties back to, like, circling back to AI, right? Right now, we are, I'm, I'm seeing public organizations, like government uh, organizations, you know, scrambling to build stuff on top of chat, or on top of GPT, maybe use chat GPT and then their own data on top of it yeah. to provide a good service, right? Well, that's a very short-sighted way of looking at it, I think, because. Yes, tell me. <laughs> Why do you think that? <laughs> well, there are several reasons. First of all, it's currently, it's tech based on data theft. That's not a great foundation to <laughs> build something on. Yeah. Uh, second of all, you're putting all your service eggs in the OpenAI American basket, which is also, also, yeah. also you know, a big warning sign. And also, they, they are not really famous for data protection. Right. The, sure. And data protection is one thing, but also they are free to change the terms of that agreement at any time. Mm -hmm. And then you're stuck. And it's like you're having this one single company on the other uh, end of the world serving your national infrastructure, which is like, that's not the way to do it. 
<laughs> so I, I I'm sorry. For, yeah. Sorry, I also need to say that there are examples of the opposite when, without any peculiar example, but certain governments issue, uh, what do you call it, like a call for uh, creating such a solution, and then a local company emerges to do that, and then that's like another right. also not right. very yeah, yeah, yeah. reliable model. Just to mention that because we are in this part of the world. Sure. And, and in a, in a conversation like this, we always have to have like almost exaggerating the points. Yes. Like, yes. of course, you can build useful stuff on large language models. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying is you should be a little careful in assessing, like, should we put uh, everything in this single company's? As in what, what you, what you put in yeah. there. Yeah. And if you look at AI and data as infrastructure assets, and I don't think a lot of people do that. Yeah. Then you wouldn't. Put all the, all the assets into one basket. You would probably want to own and, and create maybe your own national language model that is yeah. official and uh, vetted and inclusive. And you have gone through like um, making sure that there is not a bias in it, or you know all that stuff. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, nicely tested process. Yeah, that's actually a, a connection between service design and AI, right? If you are referring to service design as a backstage uh, policy design making approach and a co-creative one, then the large language models need to be designed that way um, too, to, to be compatible with that. And they are not today. Oh. I want to take you a bit on the, up on the hill so you see a bit of the view. That would be great, yeah. Sometimes I feel like there, there is, I don't know how big that circle is, but there is a group of people working on the same field that see the same thing, really, no matter how we circle around it, you know? Mm. And then there are others who seem to just see one part of it. Mm, mm, yeah. And I'm not sure what dictates that. No. As in, why is that you, I feel like, what your point of view is very similar to what I see with a lot of more, a lot more immersion, of course, into understanding AI than I do. But just the fact that it is a holistic and it's a complex system, and we need to think about it as such. Yeah. We cannot just look at AI and you know start this like tech rush that was that no. that is I think so peculiar. For example, to businesses like, hey, we just need to do something by tomorrow because we said so. Yeah, but what about yeah. examining this and that before we actually commit to something? Yeah, yeah. No, no, we said it. Johnny said it's tomorrow, so it's tomorrow. Yeah. Like, I uh. I, yeah, I totally agree. I never understood that. And I've been working with in those types of organizations on and off for 20 years. And I still am like, how do you operate? What what goes on here when you think that way? I, I can't understand it. It's like no thoughtfulness at all. No uh, spontaneous improvisation, no exploration saying, no. well, that was wrong. Maybe yeah. we should go here instead. And, That's... and you know, I, I remember when the whole startup scene sprung up and then this statement, not statement, but this idea of fail fast, fail often, yeah. you know, started spreading. And I was so happy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Allow failure. Also, what Ken Robinson said, you know, if you don't let yourself, and I'm not saying word by word, but if you don't allow yourself to fail, you will never come up with something original. Right. Exactly. Duh. The, but the problem with that is, I mean, Sam Altman at OpenAI could probably claim that, yeah, well, I tried. And then uh, built this thing in this grade. Well, yeah, but that was a problem. So the f the fail fast is not very compatible with the move fast and break things motto, right? 
because you break a lot of things in the process and you have to be yeah. a little mindful uh, when you're wielding this kind of power. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it also, it also makes me think you were saying like, should service design also be protected or, you know, be, are you, are you swear an oath before you can become one? I am also starting to think that maybe anyone in business leadership should first maybe com complete like an ethics, ethical, yeah. ethical course, yeah, yeah. course of ethics, code of, you know, conduct and before yeah, they allow yeah. to make any business decisions. Right. But then, yeah, I, I agree with the sentiment, but in practice, then why not ask that of every citizen? Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, that begs the question, okay, so who decides what the ethical framework should be? Hello, dear listeners. This is where our recording suffered a little mishap. Pontus and I started talking about our education, how we both encountered coding, and I shared that it was sheer luck thanks to the way how the university in Eindhoven did organize their programs, but I will be forever grateful for that experience. But here goes what came after. Enjoy. I learned Java programming. Right, yeah. It was in 2004, I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then it makes sense to learn Java, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, I was not in IT, you know? No. Or for instance, I attended a course called Microcontrollers and I learned how to build a motherboard and how to program. That's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it contributed to what Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, th that's, you, you, you're an example of the opposite that I said before, like designers not touching the, the deeper tech or, or the, the heavy math. Yeah. Like I said before, I, I st my first job was a, a software developer, but I did interaction stuff, right? It was for Nokia home communications. So we had the intelligent home. This was back in 2002. Oh my God. Yeah. So the dream. <laughs> yeah. Like this was before, um, before the iPhone, obviously, and before social, yeah, yeah, before social media and yeah, yeah. yeah. So Nokia was the leader in a mobile phone. So Nokia had this division in Sweden. It's a Finnish company, but they had a division in Sweden close to Linköping University where we did like the intelligent home. That was all the rage. And it started with my master thesis. My job was to explore how can we use personalized natural language speaking, spoken interaction with the home entertainment system. Yeah. My first job was to to code that. And we actually had a uh, push-to-talk uh, remote control where you could interact using natural language, kind of the same thing that Apple TV has now with yeah. the Siri remote control and so on. I had to program the whole thing. And since that was in the R&D department, there wasn't really... Like I didn't have a team doing the same thing. So I had to actually do all the things myself, the Java backend, Lisp. If you have any uh, older listeners, I don't know the age group here, but if you know what Lisp is, <laughs> then, then you're hardcore. <laughs> it's, a, it's an old AI uh, language, so to speak, where okay. you programmed AI. Okay. Uh, I don't so, know what it is. No, no. So, so I, I, I did that. And, and that, I think that baptized me in sort of, be a little less respectful to the tech and the math because it's, you know, just dig in and you, you'll get it after a while. I, I was also a bit reluctant at first. Like, this is too hard. I don't get all the loops and the functions and the calls and right. But yeah. after a while, you just learn it. And then 
new tech becomes easier to understand. Indeed, because you build on what you already know. Yeah. And it is just like learning another language. Oh, yeah. You know what is to come, even if the content is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's another thing I've heard. Uh, I don't speak a lot of languages, but... You don't? No, but but I've heard that the more languages you learn, the, the easier it becomes to learn the next one. Indeed. Yeah. I have a wonderful friend who I made in Holland at the university. She's half Greek, uh-huh. half Dutch. And she speaks, I think, seven or eight languages. Oh, yeah, that's that's a dream. Because of her, <laughs> uh, how she grew up yeah. in all these different countries. Yep. And when we learned the Java programming, we were put in the same team. Ah, and right. she did it so quickly, my God. I mean... Oh, even the Java. Oh, so you think natural language spills over I, to... I think so. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I oh, haven't that's... read anything about it, but... Yeah, why not? You learn <laughs> rules. You learn to apply them. Yeah. And you see and the patterns, and yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. That's what AI does, isn't it? Uh, yeah, in a sense. <laughs> but uh, today's AI doesn't really make sense out of the rules. That's yeah. the difference. difference uh, yeah. A human actually makes sense out of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just have a question for you for the Nokia future home thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you guys have this future scenario in front of your eyes that your fridge will notify? You, yeah. that the milk is running low, yeah, yeah. and then it will be connected to your car, and it will signal it, and then the car will be connected to the map where you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. and where's the closest supermarket. And It's like, yeah, I, I, I've heard those scenarios on and off for 20, 30 years now, and I'm like, I, that's not the issue I want to solve, <laughs> like if the milk is running out or not. I can handle that without tech, yes. right? But... In making sure that we have, you know, solving environmental issues, that would be a, <laughs> yeah. a better thing to focus on. For example, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm a little tired of this. Make, uh, like, what, what do you call it? Make those, like, really everyday nuanced chores a little better or a little more delightful. Yeah, yeah. sure, you can do that, but it's fairly uninteresting, actually. Yes, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean... <laughs> that 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 eats up less of your energy than maybe trying to save the planet. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that you should always only look for the bigger questions because I think we can do a lot of things um, using tech in other domains as well. I'm not advocating for that. You should always solve you know, save the planet kind of things. That, that's unrealistic as well. But the, the smart fridge, I, I never understood yeah, the real right. value of that. Who do you think came up with that first? And then I think the rest <laughs> were just following. Yeah. There was some guy who had and, a problem with his milk in the fridge, I think. And it's also a, a concept that is, of course, easy to explain. And you can see that, yeah, of course, yeah, that, that could make my life easier and blah, blah, blah. But is it important? Yes. So how do you think that applies for the scenarios that we talk about for the future of AI today and you know, versus what the future might bring? So uh, I do you know Ada Lovelace? No, I'm sorry. So uh, that's your computer history lesson for today. Uh, okay. That's uh, the mother of separating uh, instructions from the machine. So basically okay. hardware from software, right? Yes. And she and Charles Babbage, they were working on this uh, analytical engine, a generic um engine that could take instructions and process them okay and this was of course in like i don't know 1840 1820 something like that <laughs> okay <laughs> so ada lovelace is is had a 
very expansive mind, right? And she, not only that, she also envisioned uh, that she wrote in one of her letters something like, yeah, this machine could um, create scientific symphonies of music. Okay. So she had the expansive mind to say that, okay, so now we have a machine that is general and we can separate the instructions. That means that with a few iterations, this will actually be able to compose music, right? Right. So, I'm th- And tying back to your question, I think that we it took us 200 years, but now we actually have machines that produce music. So you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. she had this expansive idea like 200 years ago, and that has been sort of like one of many dreams yeah. to build a machine that can compose music. And now, and now we are there. And I'm... Th- I'm, I'm Tying back to your uh, question is, well, Ada Lovelace didn't worry about climate change. And Ada Lovelace didn't worry about a lot of the things that we need to worry about today. And she came up with this idea that set us on a trajectory for 200 years of development. And I'm I'm looking for who is 2023, uh, the Ada Lovelace of 2023, and what is his or her idea that will set the next 200 years of you know, agenda. <laughs> Maybe we should found a prize. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. an award for yeah. finding the next day to love this. Right. Because bear in mind, it, it cannot be a simple sort of in quotation mark, a simple idea like, yeah, let's use AI to, I don't know, uh, make energy uh, a little more efficient. That's not yeah. the kind of idea we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about the Specific. same, yeah, we're talking about the same kind of expansion of the mind that she, looking at this wooden machine, having just realized that we can separate the instructions from the machine. Yes. That machine will probably be able to compose music. That's yeah. the leap we want to, <laughs> with today's technology, what's the leap we can take, right? Yeah. Do you see any thought leaders who, you would, I don't want to say, uh, see them as Ada Lovelace, but... Right. Um, who have oh, that, this that's attitude? A, or... Yeah, that's a great question. Um, oh, that's embarrassing. Maybe that's because, you know, after a while you get uh, older and wiser, as you said. <laughs> uh, maybe you start realizing that, well, yeah, that guy or that girl, they have some things that you um, sympathize yeah, with, but see. then you see that, well, that was weird. So, but I, but <laughs> I can, uh, like... I think, for example, Tristan Harris in the Time Well Spent initiative. Yeah, okay. Uh, he, so. he runs this foundation, and I've been inspired by him a lot, um, thinking about how do we use our time with technology better. So I think that that's one interesting aspect. Um, I also think guys like Sam Harris, I've listened to his podcast a little bit, and he has a TED Talk on on the dangers of AI, for example, that I found interesting. So, yeah, and that's just top of my mind. Okay. Here you are. Oh, wow. I mean... This is so beautiful. That's the airport down there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, usually when you envision an airport, you would think of concrete and yeah. the tarmac. But right now we just see a big field in front of our eyes, just for the listeners. Yeah. It's all green. And uh, listen to the... That's amazing. So it's um, it's a public airport, and during the week, it's just for hiking. So you can come out, run here, and wow. then in the weekends they use it for flying. This is so beautiful. I'm so happy we got out here. 
Hey guys, this is where this episode ends. Because Pontus and I had a long walk with a really rich conversation, but we also want to let you go about your day. If you're curious to hear how it continued, come back and listen to the second part of this episode, which is published together with this one. You can time the listening of it to your own convenience. Thank you for listening today. This episode was produced by Aniko Fayesh and Yuli Mata. It was recorded on our favorite walk in the Buddha Hills near the Three Border Mountain Airport. If you ever come to Budapest, let us know. We will be happy to point you to where these walks are taking place so you can have your own hike and experience it for yourself. Should you have any thoughts, questions or comments on the topics discussed in the episode, feel free to chime in. You know where to find us. It's paths.puddles.products on Instagram. Leave a comment, send us a DM. However you like to get in touch, we would love to hear your opinion. Uh, you can also find Pontus on LinkedIn. He is open and happy to be in conversation with all of you guys. Original music by White Hot from freebeats.io. Have a lovely day or hear you in the second part of this episode. Bye.